I want to take a minute and talk about Shop Boss. It's the ultimate solution for automotive shop management. In fact, the founder was a former shop owner himself. He was an industry guy with coding knowledge and experience who built what he wished existed for his own shop. Let's not forget about their customer service because it truly is second to none. They've invested in the people and the processes, ensuring that you receive top-notch service every step of the way. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing separate sets of books. Everything you need is built right in. ShopBoss also offers built-in DVI functionality, eliminating the need for third-party solutions. With Boss Pay, powered by 360 Payments, enjoy integrated payments with digital signature capture. And with customizable real-time reporting on the owner's dashboard, gain valuable insights into your business at a glance. See how they can simplify your auto shop at shopboss.net forward slash gearbox. Shopboss.net forward slash gearbox. That's shopboss.net forward slash gearbox. My name is Jimmy Purdy, shop owner, master tech, transmission builder, and the host of the Gearbox Podcast. Here I talk with new and seasoned shop owners as well as industry professionals about day-to-day operations within their own shops and all the failures and successes that come along the way. From what grinds your gears to having to shift gears in the automotive industry, this is the Gearbox Podcast. So welcome to the Gearbox. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, no worries, man. This is going to be fun. Yeah. So, Jed, what do we call you? Yeah, I mean, Jed is good. Jed McClure is the full name. And, uh, you know, we, we've known each other for a while, right? You and I both used to work uh, doing wine tours. That's how I met you, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and that's a solid, I mean, that would have been like, I don't know, 2013, 2014, 2012. So yeah, about a, a decade I've known What a you. job that is, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty cool job, pretty easy job. Get some crazy stories. It's sort of like bartending or something like that where <laughs> you watch Mobile bartending of, or something. Yeah, exactly. You're just always waiting for the like, the uh, the wedding parties, you know? Right, exactly. The bachelorettes. And the, the bachelorette parties. The bachelorettes with the heavy <laughs> eye makeup. Crazy. That's when you know you're in trouble. Driving a big party bus around with a stripper pole in the middle of it. like Exactly. Oh, 14 man. 14 chicks that are, you know, hell-bent on getting drunk. <laughs> a good time yeah it was the pay wasn't bad either but it was a a good part-time gig yeah yeah yeah. that's you gotta make some extra cash you know yeah i I always tell people it's the best part-time gig in this area in the paso robles area Uh, if anybody out there is looking for a part-time job uh driving wine tours is is just a fantastic part-time you know weekend side hustle around here good money and and not particularly difficult as long as you don't mind uh you know sort of babysitting drunks in the afternoon, that's that's part of the deal. Well, they're adults, you know. You don't have to, I mean, I don't know. I never really babysit anybody. It was kind of like, you need to be on the bus. You can either get on or you don't have to, like, I don't know. <laughs> that was your approach. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not babysitting I'm not. People. I'm not babysitting. Like, if you want to drink, that's fine, but hold your own, you know. Yeah, right I'm not, <laughs> I'm just the driver, man. Right I on. mean, it depends who it was, too, you know. Yeah. If you got a little extra cash out of it, but. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting gig anyway. I mean, it was nice when I was doing all the repairs on all the limos and buses too, you know, so I could be like writing down stuff that it needs as I'm driving around and then and then calling the next week like, hey, so I noticed this, this, and that. You should bring it out and have it fixed. Yeah, that's right. You had, you had kind of two things going on there. You were working on the fleet and driving the vehicles as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. If you, uh, I noticed if you drive with two feet, you got a lot of brake jobs out of the deal, too. Nice. Yeah, there you nice. go. <laughs> I would never Wear do that. Wear those brakes out. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of one of your big... So we'll get into the, the real estate here in a second, but the, one of the big things now you're doing is is your wine tours, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've got three businesses. I've got a... I'm, I'm an independent real estate broker. I've been doing real estate around here since 2012, so a little more than a decade. And then I also own a wine tours company, and that's the newest and busiest of my businesses. Um, that's the one that takes the most of my time. And then I also own a self-storage facility, uh, Mission Mini Storage up in San Miguel. And uh, that one does not take much by the way of of, uh, of time and effort. But uh, yeah, those are the three. And that's it's a weird thing because generally it's better for people to concentrate than it is to spread themselves thin. You know, generally they say, yeah. you know, you want to concentrate. But for me, this has worked out better because um, I don't get bored if I'm changing tasks a lot. I like that. Like it makes me feel good. And then I also like having multiple revenue streams because it's like if one thing falters a little bit, you know, if there's a hitch in something. Yeah, it's always nice to pick up the slack somewhere else. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. Working, so. Yeah. yeah. Running a, I mean, now, now that going from working on or working in like a limo chauffeur style business and now you're running it on your own, how does that change for you? I mean, everybody, everybody transitions from like, you know, like in this case, being a technician, being a shop owner, you've kind of gone from a driver to being like the owner of the company. Obviously now you got to worry about maintenance and vehicles. I mean, how, what's been like a big thing biggest thing for you to kind of wrap your head around as far as okay. now you own the fleet you know like so now yeah what? yeah well okay i think one of the first things you realize is that the volume of small tasks that take up your time is substantial yeah it's like there's a number of substantive things that you have to get done each week but it's this huge list of little things that aren't big you know i need new uh diesel exhaust fluid or something like that just a little thing like that um, the number of small tasks like that, that pile up is huge. And so it's easy to feel overwhelmed with the volume of the size of your to-do list, because there's so many little things that aren't necessarily critically important, but you can't just let it all go. Right. You know, so I would say that's a big thing. And then the other thing is you can put your personal touch. You can really lean into making customers really happy. You know, like when you first start a business, you want to just absolutely knock it out of the park you know, for your first, I don't know, 100 customers, 200 customers, whatever it is, just make sure people are super happy. Yeah, yeah, people pleasing like you couldn't believe, right? Yeah, throw in little extras, you know, spend a little extra time on the phone, you know, write down their names so you can remember them, you know what I mean? Little things like that and just make sure you make those people feel really good about the fact that they brought their car to you or that they booked a wine tour with you, whatever it is. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and then I, I would say that's a big part of success early on and that really helped me get, uh, you know, the Yelp reviews and the Google business profile reviews and then once you have an online presence these days and you've got a lot of good reviews depending on obviously the industry but i'm sure that's true with uh automotive service as well and especially once you start getting some word of mouth then you get a little traction then you've got a little bit of momentum you know and so i would say those two things it's like i really like working for myself because i'm in control i like you know the idea that okay it's going to be my vision um, I'm going to solve the problems the way I want to solve the problems, get to put my skills to work, get to outsource what outsource, whatever I decide to outsource. There's a lot of freedom in that. And I, and I like that. Um, 
But then I would say, yeah, feeling a little overwhelmed with the volume of tasks that have to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. a, that's a big thing as a new business owner. Um, as you're walking around, it's just like constantly, constantly. Yeah. This, that, and the other. As soon as you're done, you're right back to square one again to start all over again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you better get stuff done and you better keep getting stuff done. Yeah. Well, when you're maintaining, and so your fleet, you got how many? So I'm two and about to add a third. So I've got, and you know, vehicle maintenance hasn't been a big thing for me yet. At some point in the future, it will be, but I've got a 2022 uh, Mercedes 2500 Sprinter and I've got a 2022 uh, Ford 350 uh, Transit, the, the high roof Sprinter style, Sprinter body type uh, van. So because those are brand new, my maintenance costs have been essentially zero so far. And then a couple of years in the future that, you know, that'll change, but I am buying a older Mercedes GL450 next in just a couple of weeks. And of course, that thing, it's a little bit of a roll of the dice because who knows? You know what I mean? Like front yeah. shocks go out. It's going to be like 3200 bucks or something like that. Who you know? knows? Yeah. Yeah. Freaking Mercedes. And, uh, <laughs> right. But, you know, the nice thing about an older Mercedes is you get a Mercedes, you know, obviously they're luxury vehicles. The interiors feel fantastic. They ride really well. And then once, Mercedes passenger vehicles get older, they really drop off in price. So it doesn't cost you much. You know, I'm just going to pay cash for it. And if I end up uh, having unexpected repairs, the reality is I'm getting into it so cheap, it's not going to hurt me. And so to have two vans and then add an SUV is really starting to flesh out my fleet. Um, so for the wine tours business, that's nice. Um, it's it's going to be a really good place to be in at three vehicles and then probably try and add a fourth like early next year. And then who knows about a fifth. Um, but I'm definitely intent on growing. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's no doubt I want to keep the whole thing rolling. I enjoy the scaling thing that, you know, because I have employees now and you got to figure out payroll. You remember when you first did payroll? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like, you don't know how it works. And it's like withholding and uh, SDI. What is all this stuff? And, you know, ultimately you just outsource it, right? You pay, you hire. Yeah. You, you, you just it. pay someone to do their job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that is, a, that is a job. So you just, you just say, Hey, can you just, can I just pay you for your services, please? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I that's use, what uh, I learned. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, it's absolutely not. It's, it's too technical to do yourself and it's too costly to mess it up. I use the well, guest. You, well, your time, your time is worth money, you know? So you can't, you, you got to learn put your time where it, where it counts, you know, like whatever makes the most money is where you got to put your time, you know? Yeah. And doing the math. And I think that's another important thing for a, a business owner is to do really realistic math and say, how much money am I really making per hour? Like when it comes down to it, after everything that I'm doing, what is the dollar amount that I'm actually netting to my pocket per hour? And then you go, if that's what my time is worth, then any task that I can pay somebody else to do that costs less than that dollar amount. Absolutely. I need to pay somebody else to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's another important thing is like metricizing, like sort of a, maybe a clumsy term, but running numbers on your own business internally in terms of the different processes, you know, which of your services or products uh, has the highest margin, you know, just really knowing your own internal numbers helps you think more clearly about how you're deploying your own time and about what makes sense to add on. You know, like every, we, we all get tempted with vanity purchases, right? Like I'd love to have like a brand new, like Yukon Denali, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that'd but, be a nice one to have. Yeah, that's such a beautiful vehicle, you know, or a Cadillac Escalade. But when you do the ROI, the ROI on a Yukon Denali as a wine touring vehicle is way lower than on a Ford Transit 350. I mean, it's yeah, just it's like body way lower. Pe pe heads per seat. Yeah, exactly. You know? 
exactly. you're paying you're paying a driver, and so how many people can you get moved with one person on payroll, right? Absolutely. You get you get three bodies in a Denali, you get fifteen in a transit, but the payroll stays the same. So <laughs> like, and, that only makes sense, right? And here's the thing, like I think out the door, you know, before taxes and fees and all that, that transit with a couple of uh you know, a few upgrades but nothing super fancy was only like fifty seven thousand dollars. Whereas a new Denali right now is like seventy six, you know, eighty one. It's, it's, it's sickening. It's way too much. Yeah. And so so like you know, you're talking about a vehicle that holds less passengers, so you're charging less per hour, but you've got to pay substantially more to get that vehicle into the fleet. So, you know, I looked at Denali's, I, I test drove a couple, I was down at, uh, you know, Borjon and, and looked at a few and, and, and called around on a few. And I just kept around on the numbers and going, geez, man, I need to add an SUV. But like the ROI on this thing absolutely stinks relative to either my Mercedes van or the, the Ford van. And the ROI, you know, the, the, the banger in my fleet is the Ford in terms of actual return on investment and then the mercedes is sort of the flagship because you know you want to plaster mercedes all over your website and your yelp and make sure that that logo is everywhere because it adds this luxury feel to your to your brand right um and that's another thing about adding the the mercedes gl450 it's like it's a little older but so what i've got two mercedes you know um that's interesting yeah, there's so many different angles to think about, but but swinging back to the metrics thing, it's like it's because I know my internal numbers that I know like, oh, that Yukon Denali is absolutely dope. I'd love to drive around town in it. It's going to look great. It's also going to sell great, right? Like it's going to look good in photos on the website and people are going to want to uh, you know, rent that vehicle, have that vehicle uh, show up in front of their 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 vacation rental. But I know that the return numbers on that thing are about as bad as any vehicle I could add. Well, why am I trying to add an un, the, the lowest performing vehicle I could add? Yeah, as far as resale and and then obviously you got to look into like the maintenance costs of these things. Now, I, I mean, I said it before, the Sprinters are very expensive to repair. I bet. So it's like, <laughs> but see, I haven't found out that, yet yeah. viscerally. Like I know, I know, you know, it's two hundred and change just to do an oil change on one of those things. You know. Yeah, but that's not. I mean, and that's nothing. Right, yeah. that's not even a, a real job. Yeah, you know? but I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things, now that's not even that much. You know, when you're talking about oil changes anymore. I mean, especially with diesels. But you know, you you get into it and you and you kind of figure that out as you go. I guess. I mean, the Ford's obviously the most cost effective to keep maintained and repaired. But I don't know. That's interesting to like think about if you were like starting a fleet. Which vehicles would you use? Like for me, and it's like, man, they all break. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I chose with the wine touring business, I chose Mercedes because I had driven one of those uh, a lot when I was working for other people. And I really liked the way it rode. I really enjoyed driving. I was like, I love the way this vehicle feels. It was uh, like a 2014, 2015, I think. Um, and then I wanted to start with a van that had a little more capacity, some decent capacity. And that one held 11 vehicles or pardon me, 11 passengers. And so I, I would be able to start off with a vehicle that I could plaster all over, you know, a website and I get to put Mercedes up front and make my brand look good. And then also up to 11 people, which gets me basically up to about 130, 140 an hour at most. That's about the top end of what that vehicle would go out for. Um, but you know, now, you can make when, some real money. Now, when you come, I want to circle back to that. So when you're talking about hourly rates, like that's interesting. Cause how do you find that hourly rate? 
Um, I'm basically just pricing right in line with what my competitors okay. are doing. So competitor pricing. Yeah, absolutely. Competitor price matching, I guess you would say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when I started out, I would, you know, I already knew because I was already in the industry and I actually technically had, I had driven basically for two other companies, but technically a third that I briefly worked for. And so I knew what the pricing was. And so what I did is I basically just priced myself in line with that, but dropped my price by about five bucks an hour. So if I knew my competitors are going to put this out for 130, I'll just quote it at 125. And when you're new, you you kind of you can undercut your competition a little bit to get jobs. That's a wise thing because you know you've got one Yelp review and your competitor has 235. So obviously they, they you know you just not established. So you got yeah you don't have the the qual like you don't have the quality assurance to to back behind your high price. And that's the same thing for me as well. Like as, as, as any service industry grows, like you can't, you can't ask for a lot if you don't have a lot to offer. Right. You know, like you have to, you have to get behind that service. And <clears throat> I get a lot of people come and ask me my hourly rate and they want to change theirs because I'm higher. Like you can't, like that's not how it works. And <clears throat> excuse me, it's interesting with that because I don't know how the metrics would work to get your hourly rate. Like f- obviously for a shop, you just take your lead tech pay, the highest he's getting paid. You run your overhead, you run your numbers, and you can pinpoint the exact hourly rate that you need to sustain that. Okay. So that so that the 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 the, the office staff gets paid because they they're not working on cars, right? Right. Like so they got to get paid out of that hourly rate. And if you have two or three or four, well you better have techs behind each of them to make up but say you have one tech one service advisor one service writer that tech's got to make enough to pay for that that person in the office to sell the job but it's also got to pay for the owner right and it's also got to pay for the overhead of the shop and a lot of technicians are like oh that's all on me and it's like well it's a team effort we're all in this together and that's why you have to put that hourly rate to say if you want to make $45 an hour and our rent is $1.20 a square foot on the shop you know, and we got power and we got, you know, licenses and insurance and all that. You got to calculate all that. And then you got to figure out this is what my hourly rate needs to be. Cause I'm in, I have a shop in this area. And so my going rate for shop floor space is a dollar 25 or a dollar 35 or whatever it is, a square foot where you could be out in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, you're getting 80 cents on the, you know, an 80 cents a square foot shop or whatever. Your hourly rate can be lower. But a lot of people don't calculate that way. They're just like, oh, you're you're at 160. I'm going to be at 160 if you can do it. Like, yeah, but there's more on top of that too. So if, if, if I'm 10 or $15 more an hour and I've calculated out to say this is what I have to make and then I've come to find out I'm $10 more an hour than everybody else, I better have something that makes me worth more than $10 yeah, an hour. Because ain't nobody going to give up. They don't care that my shop rent is more than anybody else's. They're going to drive 10 minutes to the guy that's cheaper. You yeah. know what I mean? Absolutely. Like I'm in a convenient location, sure, but they're going to go somewhere else because it's cheaper. And if we're offering the same service, then it's the <clears> same. So it's like, like you said, it's like, you know, that customer service and it really brings back to like those days of being a chauffeur it really helps because you innately have that ability to say, hey, you know, what was your name? You write their name down, like you said, you remember their name and you're like, hey, you, you just notice a car seat in the back seat and you're like, oh, you got a baby? Like, how old's your baby? You know, and and you just you just pick up on these things and before you know it, it kind of becomes natural. And I mean, I for the most part, you just try to be a decent human being. Like, <laughs> you That's, just try to be nice. But you start helps. realizing, yeah, you start realizing like, hey, don't like, don't be shy or awkward because that's the other thing too is like, you kind of don't want to bother anybody. 
You know what I mean? Like you get this feeling like, oh, I don't want to bother. I don't want to ask them. They just want to get here and get their car fixed and get out of here. It's like, no, like most people respond pretty well when you're like a nice person to them. You know? Yeah. And so just having that and having an air freshener hung in their car and like cleaning their car before they pick it up and make sure like, and like you do these extra things that at the time doesn't sound like, like your list you're talking about. You have all these little things you just gave yourself to do, but now you're worth more because you yeah. do these things, you know? And like when you're saying about all the stuff that you do and doing your personal touch, it's like, that should be worth more than a big company, even if they have 300 reviews, because you're personally touching everything and you got your, you're the owner, you're giving your personal touch. Like, man, you should charge more for that because there's, there's more of a product that you're offering. You know what I mean? But when you're first starting, nobody knows that. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knows, knows that, that you're going to do that. So you got to bring them in and show them. You're kind of like, hey, give me a shot for free. And the next time around, then, you know, like, then you know what you're getting, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like, um, well, I just had, what was I just going to say? It's like you go through phases as a business. So, you know, in the early part, you might compete on price because you're trying to get anybody in the door. You know, yeah, you just want to get them there to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. And then later on, you start competing on like, uh, you know, so you're competing on price and the quality of the service and like the frequency with which you touch the customer in terms of like taking a little bit of extra time to be personal, taking extra time to be really communicative and stuff like that. Just making people feel really comfortable and safe about the fact that they chose to bring their car to you or they chose to schedule a wine tour with me or whatever it is. And then later on, when you're in a phase, like maybe you hit five employees or something like this, and then it changes a little bit because you're established and you don't have to work as hard or price a little bit lower than the competition to get them in the door. But now you don't want to let that customer service slip because you don't want to start seeming aloof and uncaring, right? Because then that's going to reflect. It's like there's different phases. You could even get like really big to where it's like uh, maybe you have so much of of, of a reputation that people like will make it the, the customer will like make excuses for you because you're like so well known and I'm not there. I don't know if I'll ever be there. And I don't know that, that you ever would either, but sometimes it's like your brand can be so strong that it's almost like you have room to slip like uh, maybe in and out burgers. Oh, like I see that. what you're saying. Like, yeah. like your loyal fan base. Yeah. Like if I go to in and out and I have a bad experience, it's not going to damage my relationship with the brand because I've already been there 250 times and I liked all 250 other times I went there. So it's like they could practically like slap me across the face one day (laughs) while I'm, you know, ordering a burger and like, I would still be back. And you look at that employee, like you're not a true in and out person. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I would make an excuse for the brand. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, you know, certain brands in and out, like Trader Joe's, uh, Apple, there's certain brands that get to this, like, there's just a king in the mountain, like brand value place. You can a monopoly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. In terms of like, in terms of like loyalty and love and goodwill, right? Right. Goodwill is the technical term. And so I don't know that in, in wine tours, you could ever do that or in automotive service, you could ever do that. But there's like, there's a, there's a life cycle to businesses. It seems like, and then you can even have beyond that. You, you have a business like McDonald's or, um, or uh, Microsoft, where it's like you were the king of the hill and everybody loved you 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And then you just got like lazy and you wrote it out, but there's still like a ton of value in the brand. But like now you're like the old lazy one that doesn't like put effort in anymore or something. You know what I mean? I it's mean, it, a, it's definitely, it don't matter how high up the mountain you get, you can always fall back down. Yeah. I mean, you definitely. You can slip. It, you know, in this day and age with, with reviews and social media, it goes quick too. I think, I mean, to your point, I think 10, 15 years ago, it's definitely has something to do. I mean, look at McDonald's. It's just, they don't do anything special, but if they were just in the right place at the right time, 
given the right product. And yeah, they really couldn't do no wrong. I mean, at this point in time, I don't, I don't know if that's a conglomerate that'll ever fall, but, right. but to your point, like I get it, like you get to a point and it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just the consistency behind the product is all it takes. This is constant, you know, and I think it's a little off top. I guess it's a little off topic as far as customer service, but I get what you're saying. Like, yeah, you, you definitely get to that point where you're like, you know, you, you really can't like too big to fail at that point. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. Yeah. But that's a hard thing to do in the service industry when you're owner operator. <laughs> yeah. The reality is it doesn't apply. That's not a set of conditions that applies to your business or mine. Right. I mean, yeah. in this day and age too, it's, I mean, everybody's just looking for that, you know, to find you slip up and just tell the world about, oh, yeah. I, I got, I, look what they did to me, you know? I mean, you always get 10 bad reviews for every good one is what, you know, they say is like, so it's like if you can keep these positive reviews going, it's like, you just work so hard on it, you know? And I think all of us in all the service industry is like constantly worried about that bad review, constantly. Well, like it's going to like completely devastate your business if you get one bad review, you know? Yeah, well, it seems like automotive service, you know, is is a is a little bit of a rough one because people really, when they come to you, they need you. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't have a ton of choices. I mean, they, they can choose one of your competitors, but they can't choose to not get the service done for the most part. Correct. And so that's a different like disposition to which a person comes. Like in real estate, if a buyer comes to me, they may or may not really want to buy a house because they may not, they may or may not really have the kind of gumption to pull the trigger and make the jump because it's a huge decision or they might be desperately motivated, but like they, they can choose to work with one of my competitors or work with me, but they also could choose to buy a house right now at this juncture in their life or not buy a house right now at this juncture in life. But when somebody, you know, uh, blows a head gasket, it's either you or the guy down the block or yeah. the guy around the corner. Right? Or they're getting rid of their car. Or they're getting rid of their car. And they're coming to you kind of kind of scared too. It's not like consumer discretionary either, where like with wine touring, this is extra money they have. They don't uh, you know, they could do other things while well, they're them. out having a good time. Yeah. And they, it's there. They want to spend it on something they want. Whereas a blowing head gasket, nobody wants to spend money on a blowing <laughs> head gasket. Although you do get, I guess part of your business is people with project cars. Yeah. Yeah. And classics. And then you actually have a sense of love. Like somebody bought this thing cause they wanted to put money into it and, mm -hmm. and do stuff. So they come to you and they're actually all excited. They probably want to talk and, about and it. And the excitement, and I've said it before, the excitement turns into anxiety. Anxiety turns into excitement. People get confused about those two emotions a lot. Interesting. And uh, and then, yeah, it's an emotional purchase. Interesting. It might, it might have been their dad's car, their mom's car. There, there's a lot of emotions behind a vehicle. I mean, it's a sense of freedom. It's a sense of purpose. You know, for the first time in your life when you get in a car and take off, that's like the first time you're truly free, right? Yeah. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's and, – and, I mean, I have to understand that every day, like, the amount of anxiety people come up with. And, you know, sometimes you can drive five, six, seven years without anything happening. And then all of a sudden one day, that's it, you know? And you're like, what did I do? And it's like, you didn't do anything. Well, you, for one, you didn't keep it maintained or service, you know? <laughs> you got to go to a shop. You're going to spend $1,200 a year in maintenance, or you should be anyway. And if you don't, you're going to catastrophic breakdown. Well, the problem is you can do the right thing and still get a catastrophic breakdown. So it's like you either get the shock of like out of nowhere feeling, or you're like, hey, I've been putting all this money in this car and it still left me, you know, still left me stranded. Yeah. So it's like either way, it's like they still feel like they're eating the bad apple, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and I'm here just to help, but of course, I'm the guy that fixes the car. So I must have been the one that built it as well, you know? Like, 
well, I didn't, I didn't do that. Like, I'm here to help. <laughs> if you want it, like, I can help you with this. But you got to realize, like, I didn't buy it, I didn't build it, and I didn't break it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's just part of the deal. And it's like that with any customer service. I mean, even if it's not like you're not going to have a bad experience taking people out wine tasting. And you know, I think the same things. Like, man, how could anybody? Like, how could that ever go wrong? You know, but you know, people are people, and they're going to find something to to gripe at you about as well, even if they're out just drinking all day. I mean, you add alcohol to the mix. Absolutely. <laughs> you add alcohol to the mix. Alcohol to the mix and one, mis- one mistake's made, you're, you're going to have a breakdown, maybe a flat tire. And it's like, why did you let this happen to me? It's like, this is what? So far out of my control. I don't know what, like. <laughs> yeah. This isn't, you know, like I got a flat tire. It happens, you know, and it's going to happen at some point. And someone, hopefully you get the right people at the time, but you might not. And you're going to have some people that are upset. Well, where's the other? There shouldn't there be another van like following us, like ready to take. I mean, I dealt with that when we were driving limos, we'd have breakdowns and you, it's like, well, where's next? Well, there isn't a next one. Like you think there's a car just waiting for like. Like we hold one in backup position. Right, right. And it's like, it's just part of the deal though. And it's just part of the customer service and you just say look this is this is what's happening today you try to make the best of it and that's yeah. all you can do <laughs> yeah you know can't make everybody happy you know can't make them all happy um you just try your best and and let it kind of shake out a little bit and uh and you probably have a little bit of like sometimes you probably get somebody that comes in where you where, where you probably can sniff out like yeah this this person's sort of primed to not be a happy camper right here yep and maybe this is some, this is a job that's better off I just send it on down the road it happens and and um, but you never know and so I think that's that's one thing you learn as the years go on and I think as you get older you probably get better at it or maybe get more jaded about it I don't know I mean I yeah you, you get the vibe. And if you're busy enough, you don't need it. But when you're first starting out, you don't have a choice. No, nope. you take on everything you can. You take everything. And and as you grow, and you know, as we're growing, we have to take more in. And so the luxury of picking and choosing is is going by the wayside because we have more techs now, so we need more work. And so we start, you know, having to say, well, we'll just see what happens here, right? And that's what you have to do. And you know, you. You can't say no just because you had one small little glimpse of like, uh, I don't want to deal with this. It's like, well, that's just part of the job and you're just going to have to deal with it. And you just have, you know, something might go wrong. And the one thing too you learn or I've learned is is you get better at handling those situations. And the more times you put yourself in that situation, the better you get at handling it. And then it's just more revenue, right? So even if you have someone that's not ideal, if you can manage them and manage the situation and still get paid, then the ball keeps rolling, you know, yeah. instead of just saying, nope, I'm not doing it. Don't, I don't, I don't need to deal with that. It's like, no, it's good to deal with it. Cause you learn more. Absolutely. And you get better with people and you start realizing like they're just people. And there is a line where it's like, dude, you're just unreasonable and it's time for you to go. Like you have unreasonable expectations and it's time for you to hit the road. Right. <laughs> but some people have higher expectations and I've learned like, you know what? I can appreciate that. I can, appre- I can appreciate high expectations. You know, I think you're absolutely right. Every time you deal with a def- difficult customer or a difficult person, it's an opportunity to grow up. It's an opportunity to be more of an adult than you were previously. And boy, if there's one thing that's valuable in this life, it's like acting like an adult. You know, like if there's one thing that's going to serve us well, it's to grow up and handling be an adult. a difficult situation. Yeah, I mean, it really Calmly. is. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think nobody nobody looks back. You know, um, 
once they're a little ways into adulthood and goes, oh, I wish I had grown up more slowly. You know what I mean? Or, or you know what I mean? I, I wish I, I wish I had been less mature when I was 25 or 28 or 32. Like nobody thinks that we all look back and go, well, I wish I'd been more mature when I was 25. Yeah. I could have handled that situation better. Yeah, but, absolutely. You know, but then you get ones that never deal with it and they're 50 years old getting in fights at the lake. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't want to be. You that guys guy. are like fighting with like fists, like <laughs> on. The, yeah, exactly. At the launch ramp, like what yeah, are you exactly. doing, man? Have what you not you learned doing? how to handle a stressful situation before? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? What the uh, hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and that's what happens. You gotta, you gotta have the the ability to say, calm yourself down, get yourself out of that space. And then get them out of that space. That's the hard thing. I mean, it's hard enough to get yourself out of that space, but then now you have to look at them and, and get them out of that space. And it's like, okay, now what are we upset about? Like, it's like now cut to here. How do we solve the situation? Because now that you're not upset anymore and you're not getting me upset anymore, what is it that the problem is? You know, like, oh, well, it's a hundred dollars more. It's like, that's it. Like, like we can figure this out. <laughs> Let's just split the difference and call it a day, right? Yeah, or whatever, exactly. you know. Like, like, well, well, actually, it's it's because my kid. It is like, and it's always something else, you know. It has nothing to do with the situation in the shop, but we always feel like bartenders, especially. I'm sure a lot of customer uh, service advisors and shops can can attest to this, and I'm sure you can too. I mean, obviously, when people start drinking, you just become the bartender. They start telling you stuff. It's like, why are you telling me this? I'm making people come in with their cars that are broken down. And all of a sudden you've, you've known their entire family history. And like <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes, you know, her grandma had cancer and her mom passed <laughs> away and this and that. And the other thing is like, I didn't need to know all that, you know, like, but you're trying to be nice and you know, you want to keep a conversation going and being an adult. But at the end of it, you're like, I didn't need to know like all that stuff, you know, <laughs> I was on the toilet all night. Like keep all that stuff to yourself, man. I don't need to know it. It's like, it's interesting how quickly it gets personal, you know? And I think that's part, it's, it goes both ways. It's like a lot of personal stuff for the good way. And then they get really upset and negative because it's very personal. It's the same. It's like, it's, it's very interesting. It's interesting though. The yeah. The humans, the humans are, are the most interesting animal out and of, there. And of course I haven't done know? a lot of other customer service other than running the shop. So it's like, I don't know if other industries deal with that, you know, other than maybe a bartender when people start drinking a little bit and all of a sudden everything floods out, but it's just interesting. Nine o'clock in the morning, you can get someone dropping off a vehicle and before you know it, uh, you know, their dogs at the vet because, uh, of the, whatever, you know, I was like, how, why do I know that about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, in no way pertains to the business at hand, <laughs> but I know this. By the way, what was wrong with your car? <laughs> you know? That's Another thing that's funny is that some people are really good at that kind of small talk. Like some people can make themselves feel interesting and sort of in a casual, friendly uh, open, you know, personable way where you enjoy talking to them about the fact that their dog had a surgery. Yeah. And then another type of person, uh, kind of puts it on you like a burden, right? It's like, they don't have anybody else to talk to So you're here right now and they got to get their car fixed. I think that's the majority. Yeah. 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 I've met some sales, uh, people that, I've found to be remarkable by way of like how personal, how interested in other people they seem to be. Yeah, true. It's like, they'll be talking to me and they're asking me questions. And I realize that this person is like showing a lot of interest in me as a person. And what, what I can read on them is like, this is their disposition. 
Like they're just genuinely interested in people. And like this guy actually wants to know these things about me because it's pleasing to him to find out about who I am, even though like at the end of this wine tour, we're never going to see each other again. You know what I mean? Right. This is a corporate group. They came in, the salespeople, it's a trip. They've got a seminar later on, whatever it is, or tomorrow or something, you know? And it's like, it's like some people have a way of making small talk that is genuinely appealing and, uh, and uh, endearing. But then I think you're right. Most of the time, they don't have a lot of other good relationships in their life where they can really talk to somebody and tell them how they feel. So then boom, all of a sudden, they're telling the service tech. Yeah. Everything comes out. Everything. The floodgates open and you're like, all right, well, this is what you need right now. Yeah. That's all good. Kind of let them have their little therapeutic, you know, give them about three minutes and then you got to make an excuse to yeah. get to the next thing you've got to do. That's the hard part for sure. That's, yeah. that's part of the gig though. Breaking away from those ones. <laughs> so transitioning over, we'll, we'll shift gears a little bit here and move into the, real, the, the real estate stuff, right? Um, which is something I was really uh, interested about because it's a strange time right now. And, it is. And trying to buy commercial real estate is, I mean, as a shop owner, that's the ultimate goal. You don't want to rent. Nobody wants to rent. Um, it's ideal when you're starting and you're growing. But eventually, it's nice to own it, make a mortgage payment. Um, in this area, it's, I mean, I wouldn't say impossible. Nothing's impossible, but if there was... An impossibility. It's finding commercial real estate around For me sure. right now. But it, I mean, you are really wrapped up into it. I mean, you really do your research and find out this stuff. So I was really found it interesting the videos you were putting about um, how the market's going and and your whole conversation about how. I mean, I'll, I'll let you get into it, but how COVID changed that. I thought that was a really interesting take on like what the potential projection of commercial real estate is going to turn into, right? Um, because of COVID and the landlords not getting that income because everybody started working remotely and now you no longer have these commercial spaces being taken out by a tenant. And also they couldn't rent to nobody, right? Because of COVID. <laughs> so it's like they, there was a pretty big spread of this drop in income from tenants renting commercial property, right? Absolutely. What's going on right now in commercial property, the main thing that's going on right now is that there has been a dramatic rise in vacancy rates in two types of commercial uh, buildings, commercial properties, and that's office space and retail. Um, you know, brick and mortar, physical retail, like a boutique shop that sells, you know, handbags and, and hats and women's clothing or, or whatever, anything, electronics, whatever it is. Those two categories of commercial real estate are really in trouble right now. And it's already baked into the cake. Like there's going to be a whole series of defaults. There's going to be a bunch. There's going to be a, a foreclosure crisis, just like in the 2008, 2009 financial crisis when all the single family foreclosures happened, but it's not single family homes, it's commercial properties. And then it's not all of the commercial properties. It doesn't involve uh, light industrial and commercial service and warehouse. It doesn't involve self-storage. It doesn't involve farmland. It's specifically office spaces and retail spaces. And COVID really did it because it, you know there a, a monster number of white collar workers started working remote during COVID. And apparently, basically workers love that. Apparently, once people get to work from home, whether it's two days a week or four days a week or five days a week, 
you know, they realize I can go rent a little Airbnb, you know, up by Shaver Lake. And as long as the Wi-Fi is good, I could kind of like be in Shaver for like two weekends and the whole week in between, you know, maybe with my kids or my boyfriend or whatever it is. Right. And I can do my job from there and I got to put in my 40 hours and get all my stuff done. But then as soon as it's done, we go rent a little paddleboard. Yeah, you're right instant, there. Instant vacation. Yeah. So like that's appealing. And so uh, a huge percentage of, of uh, a lot of white collar workers got a taste of something they'd never had before. And there was like a kind of permanent like work culture shift where like a lot of people decided like, I don't want to go back. And a lot of companies basically found out, I mean, Elon Musk is the big, you know, he's all pissed off about it. But a lot of companies basically said to themselves, this actually works. Like we actually can trust our employees to be, you know, working remotely two, three, four, five days a week, whatever. And so that means that there's, you know, companies that needed office space for 200 employees all of a sudden need office space for 30. And so what are they going to do? They got to get out of the lease they're in and get to a smaller space. Right. Um, you know, and so, and so that, and then retail also, we, we had a, a trend that was already happening where, I mean, obviously Amazon didn't start yesterday, right? Like online retail, Target, Walmart, Amazon, this has all been going on for a long time. And the percentage of retail that was brick and mortar where people walked into a store and bought something versus the percentage of retail that was online where people bought something and it was delivered to the front door that already had really changed and, and, and purchases were moving online. But during COVID that massively accelerated. And so that means there's a lot less need for retail spaces. You know, the tenants move out, the tenants shut down, and the landlord doesn't have somebody else to, to rent to, both for office and for retail. And so what we have is a foreclosure crisis where individuals that own those types of buildings and also investment groups, insurance companies, university endowments, all the institutional buyers, because they own a lot of those big office buildings and strip malls and things like this. Um, they're going to lose those buildings and a lot of those things are going to get sold cheap. I've heard numbers as large as like 40% in terms of price declines in those two categories of commercial real estate. And that's all coming this year and next year and even into 2025. And so this is, uh, it's a major economic story because it's not only going to affect obviously the commercial real estate market, it's going to affect banks. And then is that going to lead to, you know, a cash crunch, a liquidity crunch in banking, which can essentially cause a recession. The government has to come and bail them out. There's all that stuff too. And I think for our purposes, in terms of our discussion today, the, the main thing that the listener needs to know is that we're having a very large, very high dollar volume catastrophe of foreclosures in commercial real estate. It is not in light industrial. It is not in commercial service. So it does not specifically pertain to the types of properties that you guys are as, as auto service business uh, owners are looking to either lease or purchase. And so there is not going to be a direct crash and a fall in the pricing of the types of businesses you guys are looking to buy. But the question is, is the larger malaise in commercial real estate and the larger malaise in the lending world? Because if banks, you know, if banks get real tight on cash because everybody's defaulting on the office buildings, that makes them more hesitant to loan to you, the auto service business owner, in terms of buying. So then what? They're, they're, they're lending, te uh, you know, uh, they're lending 
criteria get tighter and now instead of 25% down, they want 40% down. Well, do you have 40% of a million dollars? You know, do you even have 25%? It's hard enough to come up with either one of those numbers. Right. So now, uh, now we want a cosigner. Well, you want 40% down and a cosigner. That's a lot more difficult than 25% down and no cosigner, this type of thing. And so there, directly, this really doesn't affect the types of properties that you guys are looking to purchase or lease, but indirectly it might. And we're not really going to know how that plays out until it plays out. And so we should be, you know, we'll have more information like fall and winter of this year and into next year in terms of what's happening. But it, it would seem to me like the main thing that your listeners are going to want to know is, well, is there an opportunity here for me to potentially purchase a commercial space that'll work for, for my shop, for my business at possibly a discount in, you know, say nine months, 18 months, 24 months, whatever it might be. And the answer is possibly, I think, I think the answer is as far as I can tell in my analytical brain, the answer is possibly that's going to happen. And it probably won't be a huge discount. You're not going to be looking at some kind of large, you know, 25, 30, 40% yeah, buying stuff at prices. foreclosure prices. Yes. I mean, there's going to be a swing. That's the main thing. There's, yeah. a, there's a change coming. Yeah. And One way like, or in another. Let, let's say that that banking lending standards um, tighten up, and so there's less money for buyers, so there's less buyers for these commercial service type spaces, light industrial type spaces, and that the general malaise in commercial real estate also weighs down more broadly on commercial real estate. Is there going to be a 5% or a 10% or a 12% retraction in prices for the types of spaces you're looking to purchase? There might be. And so if that's what's going on, you know, November of this year, February of next year, June of next year, like if, if your guys are looking to buy, they at least need to be aware, looking to buy and looking to lease that prices may swing and the, the, the kind of negotiating power you have may swing in your favor vis-a-vis -vis the seller or the lesser in terms of trying to get into a lease or get into, you know, a, a deal structure where you're going to purchase something. Um, so that might move in your favor, but then if lending standards tighten up that moves that, that, against you yeah it goes the other way then yeah and so then maybe maybe the price drops 10 percent, but you've got to come up with a larger down payment or the price drops 10 percent, but the loan would have been seven and a half percent and now it's nine percent so the money's more expensive so probably looking at a mixed bag and then almost certainly not looking at a catastrophic uh, yeah, I don't see anything that looks like a catastrophic downturn in terms of uh, pricing for the types of spaces you're looking to get into. Another thing I had looked into is, is, is what are these actual vacancy rates? And apparently the vacancy rates are getting pretty high. I mean, like they're like 40 and 50% in certain like financial districts, office districts, um, in places like San Francisco and stuff like really in LA, like, like there's a ton of office space that is just sitting vacant yeah, with these yeah. desperate landlords. But apparently for like industrial space, especially small and medium sized industrial space, vacancy rates are down around like three, 4%. Um, so there are not a bunch of landlords nor a bunch of sellers out there on properties that they can't lease out uh, and that they can't find, you know, a, a lesser for. And so the desperation in this particular segment of commercial real estate isn't there. And there, I don't see anything that indicates that it will be, but potential opportunity with, with broader economic problems and broader commercial real estate, uh, troubles bringing prices down. So certainly something to watch because, you know, look, 
if real estate's super expensive like it is here in our area, right? Whether we're talking single family, multifamily, farmland, anything, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. It's all right. really expensive. It's all got right? a lot of zeros behind it. Yeah. And so like if you can find timing where you do have a 7% or a 10% or a 12% retraction in prices, well, you certainly would want to take advantage of that if you can. Oh yeah. Every little bit helps. Yeah. And in, in, in those situations, you know, I, I mean, being here in California and the central coast is like, the hot spot as far as pricing is concerned. <laughs> Everybody wants to be here. I mean, yeah, it's it's I mean you got San Francisco, you got LA, but that's like you know what you're getting yourself into there. You know? Yeah. But it's like here we're not used to that stuff, right? I mean, growing up around here, it's like and seeing these prices now, it's like, what? Exactly. It's a sea change because people were, you know, people were used to the idea that the big cities were more expensive. You know, 20 years ago, that was just sort of, we understood that, but now it's like everything is more expensive. Right. And that's, I'm sure that's happening all over the country and, it is. and your small farm towns. I um, mean, being an infiltrated and everything going up through the roof. And um, I mean, this stuff you're talking about is, is not just statewide, this is countrywide stuff. Absolutely. It's affected everybody from coast to coast. <laughs> you know, I, I've looked at single family housing prices in places like Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Peoria, Illinois, which are these are towns. Yeah. These aren't cities. These aren't major metro areas. This isn't Chicago or Atlanta or New York City, right? There's no big financial district in Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> like it's just a whole bunch of people, you know, a bunch of rednecks doing redneck stuff. It's just normal <laughs> it's, stuff. It's Templeton. But it's like you look on on uh, online, you look at housing prices, and it's like you're seeing houses that are like 385, 325. It's like this is a town that's not that large in the eastern part of Tennessee, and you got to drop 300 plus thousand dollars to get a, a newer home, yeah. you know? Like, boy, and you can get a piece of junk there for like, you know, 225, 240 or something like that. But it's like, well, a piece of junk in Chattanooga, Tennessee – 10 years ago was more like 70,000 bucks. So yeah, it, it's a nationwide problem. And there's no doubt that the world has changed. Like the world we grew up in is not the world that we're now having to navigate as adults. Like it's not the same. It's not, yeah. It's not the same. It's not the same. And I mean, I get inflation. I get stuff goes up. It's not always going to be the same, but the, changes between 1970 and 1990 and 1990 to now is not the same. No, they're not. And the timeline is, uh, it's a little less, you know? Um, so, well, 1990, like nine, I guess you would say, if you want to split the difference, but you get what I'm saying. Absolutely. It's definitely a lot more change in the, in the time period than, than the, the previously. The economic reality of this country is is dramatically altered from what it was in like the 1950s and early mid-1960s, which we all look back on as this golden era, right? That's like this era where people look back as Americans and economically, you know, the middle class was so big and so strong and everything was just powering forward, huge growth rates. I mean, our economy was growing at, you know, five, six, seven percent every year, just powering forward. And that's just not the reality we live in anymore. The middle class is smaller. It's so much weaker. Wages are so much lower. Housing is astronomically more expensive than it used to be. Literally, like housing is basically like triple, quadruple, even five times more expensive relative to incomes now than it was in like, say, 1965. And it's like triple what it was in like 1999. And it's double what it was like seven years ago. Yeah. So- you know, 
it's it's just a completely different reality and I don't know, you know, a lot about your business, right? So automotive service, I know that, you know, hourly labor prices, the prices you guys uh, have to charge and the prices that you're able to command in the market have gone up quite a bit in the last decade. Right. And obviously the consumer doesn't like that because, you know, we don't, we don't want to pay more for auto repairs. And then for you guys, it's not like you're pocketing all that money. It's not like, it's not like you doubled your prices and like you guys are just ripping down so much cash. I don't really know what margins look like in this business and you don't need to like jump all into it, but like your cost for, for the parts, for the lubricants, for the, 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 whatever the seals, I don't know all these things, but you I know, mean, everything, yeah. everything, I mean, everything from like the business standpoint, paper, ink, right? Yeah. Computer programs, like normal business stuff that we all have. And then you roll in, like you said, you get into stock of like having to stock certain point, filters, bulk oil, bulk fluids. Yeah. Yeah. Like lifts, lift maintenance. You got these $12,000 lifts that have to be maintained. Air compressor, air compressor tanks got to be certified. Airlines, airlines got to be certified. You got the EPA coming in to check stuff. You got the environmental, you know, the county health coming in to make sure everything's good. Um, I mean, everything's got to be contained. You got to pay for that program. You know, then you got to pay for all the different programs. And then, then you get into like the, what do you call it? Extracurricular, right? So then we pay to keep our guys ASC certified, which is not a requirement. You know, the BBB, the Better Business Bureau. And then uh, the, then you have to pay for just Department of Consumer Affairs, the DCA. And you got to have your bar license, your Bureau of Automotive Repair. That's things that you have to have. So there's this mix and, and a lot of guys will just draw the line. I'll just get what I absolutely need and that's it. And it's like, well, that's not, in my opinion, good enough. Like I want to be technically savvy. So there's a lot of other stuff on top and that's still like kind of business stuff, you know, and that's still not like getting into like, like you said, the actual automotive service side <laughs> of, like, yeah. of like needing these different things to keep things rolling. And so, and then let's talk about rent and, and electricity and water. And, and then you got uniform services and the rag guy. I mean, there's just layers upon layers upon layers. All those things have also gone up. <laughs> you know all what I mean? <laughs> Every Absolutely. piece of that pie has all been elevated, including rent. I mean, it was, oh, rent, well, rent's gone up too, So, but you have to go up that much more. It's like everything I just stated has also all gone up. Uniform yeah. services. You know, just snacks to have in the fridge for the guys. Like, we've all gone grocery shopping, and it's like, yeah, they don't need snacks, but there's a technician shortage right now, Right. And without my guys, I'm nobody. <laughs> this isn't right. a shop without my technicians. So they get whatever I can give them. You know, if that's a pay raise, if that's sending them to technical schools, seminars, having sodas and snacks in the fridge, like that's the stuff that I would want. So I'm going to have it in there and I'm going to buy extra so they can have some. Yeah. It's not like you can't like, it's a line item, but it's not like you can say, Oh, well you're charging more just because there's snacks in the fridge. It's like, you're missing the point here. Like <laughs> these are things that I want to have to run a successful business. That's also gone up in price, you know, and the computer programs, you know, like you got to, you can't run a auto shop. I mean, I'm sure there's guys are that still writing it out on paper, but you got to have a, you got to have a program. You got to have something where it goes in, that information saved. We give a three-year warranty. You think we're going to remember the car that come in yeah, three no years way. ago? 
<laughs> like that stuff needs to go into a program and yeah. be saved so that when it comes back in, we can warranty it for the next three years. And if yeah. it's not me running the office, if we hire somebody, they know and they don't have to call me and ask me, hey, did so-and-so Mrs. Jones come in here and get her you know, rear axle replaced? And, and is this under warranty? He's like, just look at the computer. You got to have a program for that, you know? So, and it's got to make it efficient and that's gone up as well, you know, cause they got people that they hired to keep that computer software up to date. So yeah, it's just all around. It's just, everything's gone up and there's a lot of guys that are stuck. Like I'm not charging more. You have to. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? If you don't, you're shortcutting something somewhere. And typically that means that you're not paying your technicians enough or you're not doing the job properly cause you're cutting a corner to do it quicker. So you don't have to pay them as much. Something you can't not pay your PG&E bill because it's gone up. You can't not pay your extra rent, right? Like all those things, like our overhead that have to be paid. You can't just be like, oh, I'll just pay a little less on that. It's like the only way you can shortcut yourself and keep your labor rate lower is the one thing that you can control, and that's the technicians, your employees. You can pay them less or have them do the job not to standard spend less time on it. So you're not paying them as much, but still charge the same. I mean, right. I mean, that's the only way to do it. Or you can just literally just start losing money and like, well, I just won't take a paycheck anymore. So my, my labor rate can stay the same. Like exactly. But you can't do that. Cause you also have to pay for your house and your groceries and your kids. And well, and, and your income has to rise if the cost of living rises, right? You know, it's all relative. Like you also have to, you can't like take money out of your pocket to like, Make sure your labor rate stays low because you it, don't want to be the guy to raise it, your rate. It, isn't it stressful being an adult? I like because it, it's you know it's funny we sit here we talk about this and it just reminds me of listening to my dad talk to guys that he knew back in the day. You realize like, geez, dude, it's it's like you get into like you know your thirties, your forties, whatever. When you're in that middle part of life, when you have a lot of responsibility, you have a lot of responsibility. Like no wonder people are all stressed out. Like there's a lot of stuff to think about, a lot of stuff to take care of. I uh, I saw somebody somewhere somewhere online and they were saying. You know, they do all these happiness, happiness studies. They, they pull people all over the world every year and ask them how happy they are. And, you know, uh, gender, age, different countries, all this kind of stuff. So we know, like, which countries have the happiest people. And we know what time periods in people's lives are happiest. And one of the things I noticed in, in our conversation right now talking about this makes me think about it, is that people are happiest when they're in early adulthood before they have kids, mortgages, and major bills and responsibilities. And they're happiest when their kids are growing and they're retired or semi-retired. But that middle chunk of adulthood where people like have mortgage payment or they're stressed out because they wish they had a mortgage payment, right? Yeah. And yeah. they've got a business to run. They've got a career. They've got these responsibilities. They've got little kids. There's there's a noticeable, substantial, statistical dip in how happy people report they are with their lives. So it's like early adulthood and late adulthood are the happiest and it, it has to be because the stress level's lower. And, you know, we're both in that middle adult section now yeah. where it's like, dude, like you better keep this thing running because you're going to be in a world of pain. If your business doesn't work, if your finances don't work, if you start drinking too much, you know, if you, if yeah. you, yeah, if, if it, if it comes off the rails, you're going to be hurting and you know that. So you got to get up in the morning. You got to keep your nose to the grindstone. You got to make it happen. And that's yeah, an don't innately, slip up. Yeah. Yeah. It's an innately stressful thing. And it's easy to slip up because, you know, alcohol, there, there's a drugs lot abuse. in this day and age. There's a lot of everything. Yeah. Whatever you want, man. Sugar. Whatever you need. Alcohol. You just pick up that phone porn, and that whatever, man. Gambling. You can just find it on your phone and that's it, man. It's all right there. It's so easy, so obtainable. It takes so much more mental strength 
to stay doing what you're doing. And then even like being, you know, in the, in the position of running a business, you have a lot of gross revenue. You don't keep a lot of it. I mean, we keep, you know, like any other business, it's 10 to 20% that you keep your net. And it's pretty standard, like for anybody. Yeah. You know, maybe the bigger ones, they get lower, but your multi-billion dollar company and you keep 3% of it, you're doing pretty freaking good, you know? But the bottom line, what I was getting at is you get a lot of this gross revenue coming in and then the wheel starts spinning, right? And and yeah, this stuff's not due for 30 days, but there's 50 grand in the bank, 100 grand in the bank, 200 grand in the bank, right? But that's all going to go away in about 30 days, right? When everything's, yeah, you know what I mean? So you're, you're really managing a lot of cash and yeah, that temptation's there, you know? Hey, if I just, I could just do this, do that. And then you get these like people that are selling you something, you know, whatever it is, like timeshares, that's a good example. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we all know better now, but it comes up. It's these temptations that come up and it's like the added stress. Now you have this exit that looks like, oh man, because spending money feels good. I don't care who it you does. are. It feels I don't care good. Who you are, you know. <laughs> spending money is like getting a donut, you know, like you yeah. just, you're going to like it. You're gonna like the You're way gonna you feel. Like doing it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's another vice, you know, as 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 being the one that controls the finances, you have you have that authority to do that, you know, and you have to remember like, hey, there's guys that are counting on this money for their payroll and their kids and their it's like, no, I'm not even like it's not even a thought that I'm gonna touch it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, that's also there that piles on that a lot of people do take it and they do do that. You yeah. Know? And they like, I had this money and I spent it, and now what am I gonna do? And now it's like, like they spend the next 10 years trying to make up for it. It's like, yeah, because it, it, it does. You just, in your mind, you're like, oh, I'll make that right back up. No problem. But you'd never do, you know? And I, I've, I mean, I'm sure you have too, but we've both seen businesses do that. You know, they don't pay their guys. They give them a check. Hold that for a couple of weeks. I'm like, hold my check. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, absolutely. You get to that <laughs> point. You've got a problem. You got a big problem. You got yeah. a cash flow problem or you spent it. I mean, but it all, like you said, goes back down to like that mental staying strong and staying just on that, uh, having your vision, being dedicated to it. This is, like you said, with your, with like, uh, this is what my plan is. And I think that's why it's important to have a business plan and a vision, you know? Absolutely. When you're moving forward. The, the wonderful thing about being a business owner is that it forces you to step up. You have to step up. You have to become more adult. You have to try harder. You have to be more on point. You have to be more realistic. You just have to. And that's the great thing because it forces you to become a bigger, better person. But then the downside is you're like, you, you can feel like a ship in a storm without without a rudder you know what i mean like sometimes you're like i don't know what's going to happen next you know what are the economic conditions going to do what's the price of this going to do you know or like like in 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 the wine tours business it's like when gasoline started getting really expensive it was like well what if it goes up 50 percent from here so now i'm doing the math on what happens if i've got to buy gasoline at eight bucks a gallon and diesel at 950 i'm doing the math and going that's a problem yeah <laughs> that's a problem you know like because the customer is not going to pay more because my cost went up, you know? And the reality is they're going to vacation less, which means I'm going to have less incoming phone calls. Yeah. Uh-oh. That's a big problem. And fortunately, gas prices eased off from like last year and and they they went down a little, you know? And so it's, I look at it now and, and it's like, uh, 
Yeah, you just you have all this stress. So it's like it's so wonderful that it forces you to grow up and you have to become a bigger, better version of yourself. And yet at the same time, there's a burden that comes with that because you got to carry the weight of not only are you going to keep this thing, are you going to screw it up? Are you going to take that 10 grand and spend it on something you you really didn't need and then regret it and have to dig yourself out of that hole? Are you in and you're stressing out not only about your own financial situation, your own business, but knowing that other people are counting on you. Yeah. Both the customers and the employees. And you know you and you know you and Leanne are are together long term couple, right? It's like you she's working in your business. You guys have this business together. It's not like there's some other source of income from some other place. Whereas if you run this thing off the rails, well, at least Leanne will be bringing home the paycheck from the government job with the health insurance. Right. That doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point to bring up too, because it yeah it goes both ways, you know. And I don't think a lot. I don't think a lot of people could be in that position that we're in but yeah i mean it brings up a a good point like this thing has i mean there is no plan b there is no other option which you could i think you could go back and forth with pros and cons on that for a long time trying to figure out which way is the best the better way you know and i think just being all in is obviously the best way to go in my opinion like just go all in and make it work you know yeah um having that extra source of income kind of pulls you back a little bit and la- allows you to say, oh, maybe I'll make a mistake. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe it's not a big deal because she's making money and I can make a mistake and she'll make a, you know, like, so it's like knowing that you're all in, it definitely sways you from even having that conversation with yourself. <laughs> and it's For me anyway, in a sense. So it's like, that's a good thing. Like it's not even an option, but if there was some other money coming in, you start thinking, oh, well, she'll make up the other side of it. It'll be fine. I was gonna buy. I was gonna buy that low end lip, but I'm gonna get the fifty thousand dollar one because it's cool and it's shiny, you know. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you don't think logically, and it's like the same thing with the gas. It's like forces you to like pay attention to that stuff. Pay attention to that everything. Like water, I'm sure you get water. I mean, I buy water, you know, and I've come to realize I'm not gonna buy bottles of water. I buy water from the water guy, and now we have distilled water for the vehicles, and we have drinking water for the guys. It was just. Like you just run the numbers and you realize like, well, it's only three bucks for a case of water, right? But you buy like four of them a month. And then you start realizing like, wow, this now I'm buying five or six because it's summertime. And then you're like, well, I also need distilled water that I'm buying, you know, for the vehicles. And you just like, I can have someone deliver it here. But a five, five gallon bottle, you know, and it's like, it's just more efficient that way. And you just pay attention to that stuff where it's like, What'd you do today? Well, I, I I did my math to figure out if it's cheaper to buy cases of water at Smart yeah. Final or have the, the guy yeah. come down and bring bottle. You did what? You like I, you algorithm water? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I but did it makes the math. sense, you know. Yeah, it, and and that's right, and that's you know you're you're, you're referencing back to what I was saying earlier about metricizing. Like, do yep. the math on everything, even the little stuff, and it's like even if it didn't matter because it's only a seven dollar difference a month or something like that. The fact that you're got a calculator and you're running the numbers is so valuable. I did the math on the tire shine, the stuff you spray on your tires after you clean them to make them look all wet and shiny. Yeah, and it was like, how many times can I shine four tires? in uh, on with this can of tire shine versus that can of tire shine and i think it, i think it cost me something like um a dollar and like 43 cents or something like this to shine the tires on one vehicle so then i'm like okay three vehicles in the fleet so, so that's like what uh three four fifty four twenty five it's like four dollars and 25 cents on a saturday morning for me to shine up the the tires on my vehicles and if i ask myself the question okay is that worth it 
I think the answer is absolutely yes, because all three of my vehicles show up looking really good, looking real clean. For four bucks. For four bucks. Yeah, it's definitely worth that four bucks. Um, And so then it's a no-brainer. It's like, okay, don't think twice about whether or not to buy the tire shine. Buy the tire shine. And I did the math, and I know what the math is, and I know with absolute certainty this is worth it because it's literally $1.43 per vehicle per application. Yeah. And that's the stuff you think about when you own a business. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's the more important thing, I mean, at this point, of course, you've made that decision for you and it's your business. There's nobody that can tell you whether that's the right thing or not. There's probably people saying right now, like, oh, that's not worth it. Why is he spending the money? And there's people like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Like, you're going to have a divide, but it's yours. You get to decide what to do. That's the point of it. But the more important thing is, is you know now, if you need more money, if you're getting low and you need to start pulling back, not that $4 is going to make a difference, but you know all these different pieces and what they cost. You know what these line items are. Yeah. You can start you can start deleting them to get more right, more gross income coming in. Absolutely. It's $4 is $4, sure. But if you do that with everything, you can start really saying, okay, I'm having a slow month. What do I absolutely not need to have this business keep running? Tire shine, you can probably take off that list for this month if it's not that busy, right? But that's why it's important to know all that stuff because when it happens, not if, but when it happens and you need to pull back a little bit, you can say like, what part of my business do I not absolutely need? And you got it all written down and you're like, boom, I can come up with $1,500, $2,000, $10,000, whatever it is by removing these things off the line item and not purchasing these extras this month, you know? And then you can move forward and then you can go right back to as business as usual when everything gets normal again. Yeah. COVID's a great example of that, you know? Right. Wow. And if you don't know those things, then how are you ever going to like, you're just, the first thing you do is you, is you go poke the bear of like, what's the most expensive thing that I have? And I'll get rid of that. You know what I mean? Like, cause if, if you go into a crisis state and you don't know, first thing you're doing is firing your $50 an hour tech. Dude, you need him. Yeah. He's your profit turner. But in your mind, you're like, I just got to get rid of the most expensive thing right now because I'm hurting. Dude, <laughs> that's not the right way to do it. Yeah. But that's what happens. And because you're not paying attention to the line items. Yeah. You would need to know this stuff off the top of your head, kind of like you need to know the numbers in your business so well that it's like if people ask you, you, you shouldn't really have to go look. Go look it up, right? It depends how complex the business is, of course. But like that would be ideal. Of course, we're all striving to get there. But <laughs> yeah, well, it depends how many things there are too. I, right. mean, I don't know your business model. The, the complexities here could be a lot greater. Um, it's complex for everybody. It's and it's always constantly changing. And you know, but if a sales guy walks in and he's trying to sell you something, that might be game changing for you, or it might just be another guy wasting your time, right? But if you don't know, then how do you know? You're just going to treat every sales guy that walks through your door like he's wasting your time. When in fact, he might have something that actually might be game changing for you. You know? Right. Whether it's a new server. I mean, we just we just changed our uh, credit card processing machine. Um, and it's like most of those times those guys walk in, into your door and you're like, dude, I don't like, I got a credit card machine. I don't need another one. Like, leave me alone. But it's like, we know the numbers on it. We knew what he was, what he was pitching. And it was like that. That's going to save us it's like two grand a year. Nice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it adds up. It's like, and, and not knowing where you're at and what he was offering, like you would have just shoot him away. Right. Just like you're saying earlier with the customers, it's like, yeah, you got to deal with some bad ones because you gotta make some money. It's like, you got to deal with some bad salesmen. Same, 
context. Like he might have something that you actually need, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and if you don't know, then you're just like, whatever, get out of here. Like, I don't need you. Like you just, you just like threw away $1,500, $2,000. Yeah. I'm sure it's only a hundred bucks a month or 200 bucks a month. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like that's all matters. <laughs> yep. You know, whether you want to go get a Starbucks that month or whatever, <laughs> at least you got the money to do it. You know, that's, you, you got to have it, you know? Yeah, it, it's important. But that, that's that's it's interesting with the tire shine thing. That's uh, that's definitely a detail. That uh, I, I mean, I definitely overlooked that stuff. I've always thought about that with brake clean because the guys like to use brake clean like two at a time, okay. like not just two at a time, but like two in each hand, two at a time. So you like got four <laughs> okay. cans spraying at once. <laughs> <laughs> not in reality, but you. Yeah, I hope yeah, that yeah. painted a nice mental image as they're just laughing, just hosing down whatever. <laughs> Like, oh, I dropped some fluid, like one drop of oil, and it's like out of their holster, you know? <laughs> Just hosing it. Like, take it easy on the brake clean, guys. But I've always thought about that with fluids of like weighing them, having a scale, you know? Then you take your bottle of fluid, you price it out per ounce, and then you weigh it, and then you can charge the client like, well, we use four ounces. It's, you know, 32 cents an ounce. And it's like, but the amount of time it takes to do that, it's like, I'm not paying somebody $40 an hour to weigh oil so we can charge correctly. It's like, yeah, yeah. Totally. No, no. If we open the bottle, the bottle, you paid, you bought the bottle. Like that's the bottom line. But it's funny you brought that up because that's what it reminded me of is like weighing your oils and then like knowing exactly what the weight is per ounce and like charges like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't, I can't pay people to do that. Like if it was me, sure. Running it by myself, but it's like, like when you, I don't know if you get to the point where your, your employees will be putting tire shine on, but you can't realistically control how much they put on each tire. You right. can, right? So you know, but at least you have that now. And if, if later on they start running through that stuff, it's like, Hey, look, I can do this and it costs me $4. You're costing me $8. You're putting twice as much on as you should be. So it's still important to know. Absolutely. Well, you know, we use the the microfiber towels to clean the vehicles, right? So we're going through those like crazy and then they have to be cleaned. You guys are using the shop towels. Yeah. So that's one where like you probably say something to your text like along the lines of like, don't just like lightly use a towel and then throw it in the, like make sure that thing gets dirty. Well, being a launder service, we just get them dropped off. So it doesn't make a difference. Use as many as you want. Don't leave them on the freaking floor. That's, uh, my, okay. that, that's my one vice. If you use, I want to see you using it or it goes in the bin. I mean, that's just my own personal okay. thing. I don't want rags laying on the tables, on the floor, on freaking everywhere. So it, you use it and then it goes in the bin. But we don't buy them in bulk and then like buy another set. It's just a launder service. Okay. You know? But you're paying per rag that they launder, right? No, it's just, it's just like a weight thing. They just drop bags off. Might be something you could oh. look into too because they do have carbon, uh, the carbon... Was it carbon fiber? Not microfiber. Carbon fiber. Microfiber. Why do I always call it carbon fiber? So that microfiber. Might... So they have microfiber towels that you can rent from the laundry service. So wait a minute. So you have so you have like an all you can eat type thing going on there. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They just really? drop, yeah once a week they come in drop off mops, rags, um, and we get white rags. So I'm big on white rags. We got white rags and we get these big um, towels. They're like kitchen towels almost. Nice big ones, big fluffy cotton ones. And then we just actually uh, added on those microfiber ones because we like to wipe side, wipe the car down fingerprints, but I don't want to use shop towel rags for it. So we actually got the microfiber ones to wipe the 
Sometimes, you know, the greasy little fingers get on the win- windows yeah, and on the sure. fenders. And it's like, I don't like using the shop rags because it might scratch it. So we got the microfiber ones for it. But. That's interesting. So that might be a really good idea for my business because there's no doubt the microfiber, we're always wiping down the exteriors, the windows, and the interiors of the vehicles. I mean, all the time. And yeah. I've already bought so many of those things from Costco. Yeah, and you're not like a detail shop. Like I get detail shops have to have them brand new and they wipe it and then they flip it and fold it and they wipe it and then it's done. Like they're just like, some of those detail guys are like insane with their microfibers. Like it's got to yeah. be brand new out of the bag and you can only wipe the surface one time when you say, but yeah. I literally do that with the windows. When I do the windows before a tour, I literally use a fresh side of the towel then I flip it and then I do the other four. You know, you get eight total applications yeah. right. and then I can get the windows like real good. Um, yeah. Sounds a little more, more detail orientated for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you're fixing them. I'm, I got to show up with the thing looking real clean. You know? Well, I mean, I mean, like I said, well, you're not like getting paid to detail. So it's like having just, you just need clean rags. You don't need brand new ones. You just clean them up real quick. Right. It's. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, for us, it's a no brainer. Like there's no way I could go buy bags of rags. It doesn't make any sense. There's no way. <laughs> There's no way. That's yeah. crazy. The amount of waste, and then and then, I, well, the problem is is throwing them away. I can't just throw them in the dumpster. I'd have. Oh, to, that's like, right. You can't. I'd have to like, do that. No, I'd have to like the whole. It's like it's not even like. An, yeah. It's not even an option. It's not know? even an <laughs> option. See, with mine, I, I actually launder them myself, and I've only I have like two hundred of them, so I only have to do it every few months. But oh, actually, well, you keep them every time and you wash them. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were buying a new bag every time. No. Oh, no, no. that makes sense. There's I no way you can do it any cheaper. And then, and then uh, soak them in OxyClean and then launder them and then fold them and, and reuse them. And I just make sure I have multiple hundreds of them. That way, I don't want to be doing that once a month. You know, I want to be doing it from time to time. But I might look into a service like that because I haven't priced that out. I mean, if that's easier and I don't have to think about it, then that's yeah. easier and I don't have to think about it's it. It's definitely going to be, I mean, I, I, it's like a minimum of $80 a week. So oh, that, really? Okay. Yeah, it adds up, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely, there's no way. There's no way I'm using 80 bucks a week worth of microfiber towels. But, no, no. But a shop like this is going to race through that stuff real quick. Yeah, and like I said, on the on the back end of it, trying to dispose of the rags is like, that's not even, I'm not even going to go down that, that like. <laughs> yeah. It's already hard enough to get rid of the filters and the oil and the coolant and everything's got to be separated. It's like, there's no way I'm going to have a, barrel of rags that I'm trying to dispose of as well. No. Because that would just no, just be stacking up. <laughs> you know, Jimmy, there was one more thing in terms of purchasing like uh, 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 you know, the type of shop space that would work for um, automotive servicing that I wanted to bring up, if you don't mind me just let's like get, let's get into it, yeah. Blunt redirecting. So I want to talk about creative financing and this is something that it doesn't happen. Oh, this is a good one, yeah. Um, yeah, all the time, but it's out there and it's possible and these deals really do develop. So let's say you own an automotive service shop and you know you need to buy a property and it's going to be 700,000 or 1.2 million, whatever it's going to be. You know, you, you were talking about yourself, you looked into like SBA financing and obviously those really favorable terms on that, right? Like low down payments and uh, favorable interest rates and they guarantee the loans and, and this kind of stuff. So you've got some good options there. And then I don't know what conventional looks like for industrial spaces, um, but I imagine 
you're looking at conventional loans, a dead minimum of 20% down. The reality is though, your average guy who has an auto shop and is leasing space and wants to buy is not also on the side, a real estate developer, which is to say the bank doesn't look at that type of person and go, oh, 20% down. They look at that type of person and they go, you've never borrowed this type of money before and we have no idea what's going to happen. Therefore, we want 30, we want 35, we want 40% down. Well, coming up with you know, double-digit percentages of $700,000 or $1.2, million, hard to come up with. So then what's another route there? Let's say that maybe your credit is not stellar because you know you went through a divorce and your wife ran up a bunch of stuff on the credit cards, whatever it is, um, or you were stupid when you were younger and something like this. If the credit and the cash and the ability to get the financing to buy a place aren't there, one thing you can look into is contacting individuals that own these types of properties and trying to see if you can structure an owner carry situation or a lease option that's modeled as an owner carry. So let me let me sort of get into the details on this. The idea would be you go to somebody, they've got a you know million dollar uh, property, and you say, okay, look, I I don't have you know I've got a hundred thousand I could put down, but I don't have the three hundred thousand dollars that the bank is going to require. So I'm going to come with a hundred thousand, go to the owner and say, look, I want you to carry a note for the other nine hundred. I'll put a hundred down. We can amortize it for however many years, and then you show them the math and you say, look at how much interest income you're going to get because you're basically going to be the bank and the seller. So you're going to get your million bucks, but also you're going to loan me that other 900,000 on that owner carry note at 7% or whatever the going kind of mortgage rate is. And when you calculate out 700% of $900,000 over the course of a bunch of years, it adds up quite a bit. And the person doesn't have to necessarily hold the note for the entire, say, 25-year amortization schedule, which would be typical for like a commercial real estate loan. You could say, look, you're just going to make interest on it for the first, say, 7 or 10 or 12 years. And then at that point, I'll have a bunch of equity in the property. I'll go to the bank. I'll refinance and completely cash you out. That way you can get the meat on the front end of the amortization schedule where a lot of each monthly payment is interest. And when you do the math for somebody and you show it to them like that, they realize like, oh, so, you know, I bought this, you know, shop in 1987, right? Got it paid off, you know, five years ago, whatever it is. I've got a million dollars of equity here. I can't, I can get the million, but I can get another like maybe $450,000 in interest income. And the, the reason why somebody would do this is essentially that they're retiring. People who are going into retirement, they're relocating to another part of the country, they need retirement income, they've got this asset they build up, they not only had the shop, the business, but they also had the real estate, or they've got some real estate, but they might've been doing some other like manufacturing or warehousing, whatever it is, the, the space you're gonna pick up. But when they can pad out their retirement like that, that's when it makes sense for them to do something like that. And so the thing to understand is that sometimes, not all the time, but some of the time, you can find a seller who has a profile that makes it advantageous for them to sell to you and to be both the bank and the seller. And so if you can locate somebody like this and go in and show them the numbers and show them why it makes sense, you can potentially put together a deal where you don't actually have to have a sizable down payment. You don't actually even have to have the kind of credit score that, uh, that, that, that would cause a bank to lend to you. And you don't have to go through the whole process to even get your credit pulled. And so this type of deal isn't just laying around in that, you know, for every hundred sellers out there that have a space that could work for you and in your business, it's not like 90 of them are in a position to sell you on this term, these terms, but 15 of them might. 
And so you're looking for for that 15%, whatever it might be, for whom it makes sense to sell to you on an owner-carried kind of creative financing structure. And creative financing is the sort of broader umbrella term for this type of thing. Um, and then uh, you could potentially put together something. And so that that's not going to be something that is just automatic where, oh, that's what I'll do. You know, that's what I'll do as a guy looking for a shop space. But it is a possibility. Those deals happen with single family homes. They happen with multifamily. Those deals happen with farmland. They happen with warehouses. They happen with all different types of properties. And there's no reason why light industrial commercial service type properties um, can't be sold on terms like that because there's always older people looking to retire. They're out there. Yeah, and, and all, all, it ta- all it takes is an attorney to write it up. Exactly. You don't need to. And then the other thing is you also can play with it too because there's another thing uh, selling in installments. So for example, if a guy with a million dollar property sells it to you with 100,000 down, he's going to have $100,000 in capital gains in the year in which you paid him the down payment. And then the interest income he makes is going to be taxed as ordinary income. So it would be taxed just like he had been getting 1099 or something like that. And then the principal portion of each monthly mortgage payment that you would make to him would also be taxed as a portion of capital gain. So he would get like, you know, a hundred and like maybe, I don't know, $25,000 worth of capital gains getting taxed at 15% in the year in which he sold. And then the interest on that might be another, <coughs> pardon me, I don't know what it would be, 20,000 bucks that year or something like that. So he would have 20,000 of, of income taxed as ordinary income, like 1099, which is a higher rate. And then he would have 125,000 in my little example, taxed at 15%. But what that would save him from is having that entire million get taxed at 20% at the federal level and at a higher uh, rate at the state level. So in other words, you can start playing around with the numbers in terms of how much down you're going to put to keep the seller underneath higher capital gains tax rates, both at the federal and the state level. And you can have an accountant or an attorney play with the numbers a little bit and tweak your deal structure so as to minimize the taxes that the seller pays. So if you go to the guy that's 63 years old and his back's you know, been thrown out 15 times and he wants to retire and he's got this property he wants to sell to you. And you show him, look, over the course of this deal, I can put an extra $450,000 in interest income in your pocket if you you know, keep the loan, if I don't refinance it for a decade or something like this. And we can structure it so that we minimize your tax income or minimize your tax hit, which puts additional, you know, people can start getting wide-eyed if they're, if they're really the right profile to sell um, to a younger guy. You know what I mean? That's, they're going to sell to the young, hungry, energetic guy that's going to come in and do this kind of thing. People can start getting wide-eyed when they look at the numbers on that. And I can't deep dive this on a podcast because you need to get a mortgage amortization schedule, which you can get. They're out there. You can just download them online. And you've got to start playing with numbers and, and learning a little bit more. Um, you know, There's YouTube videos. There's other stuff. But just understand that owner carries um, can be structured in such a way as to reduce the tax burden on the seller. They can be structured in such a way as to increase the total yield by adding interest income to, um, to, uh, uh, what's it called to, to the purchase price when they carry. And this type of thing for the right seller can really, uh, become advantageous. If you find somebody like that, it's going to take some hunting. It's going to take some looking around, but once you know how it works, if you, if you can find something like that, um, potentially you can put together like a real home run of a deal for you where it's like, you didn't even have to get a bank loan 
and potentially didn't even have to put down a huge chunk in terms of, you know, maybe a down payment that, that uh, is something you actually have rather than a down payment that you wouldn't be able to come up with. Yeah. Um, and so it's a good thing to know. And, you know, if, if anybody wants to get a hold of me in terms of getting more information on that, I could flesh that out for you a little bit, get a hold of Jimmy and, uh, and, and he can put you in touch with me. I could talk to you a little bit about that, but it's something to know about and it's something to explore if you're looking to buy commercial property. Yeah. I mean, I think the, it keeps interest out of it as far as paying interest to a bank. So that's getting wiped out of it, right? Well, and what do you mean by getting wiped out of it? Well, you're not you're you're paying interest to the to the to the seller versus paying it to to the bank loan, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So so the seller's keeping that, and then also, I mean, obviously, it's always kind of a, I guess, it's a bummer for you, but you're not paying real estate fees, real agent fees. Yeah, well, so you're just paying the attorney for their work, which it, you're just sitting down for a couple hours to write up the contract. But I mean, it just keeps a lot of money kind of in play versus going yeah. to these different directions. Well, you could use or not use a realtor. I'll tell you something about realtors. Most realtors do not have a bunch of experience with creative financing stuff because that's not what typical real estate deals are. Realtors list people's houses and sell single family homes and they help buyers buy. Well, it's just like family. a used car salesman. Yeah. They don't know the car. Yeah, yeah, Most yeah. people that sell cars don't know the car. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they talk like they do. They talk like they but do. They, don't. they wrote the they they read the same brochure that's sitting in the waiting room in the lobby that everybody else read. But for the most part, you go buy a car, they don't know that car. There's a thousand different models of cars on that lot. They do not know what the mileage is. They don't know the service schedule. They don't know anything. They just said, "Here's the keys. You want to go drive it?" Right? I mean, yeah. you just bought a new truck. I mean, that's what it was. That's what, Right. And then they ask you how your life is. They don't know anything about the vehicle. So it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. the less amount of work you can do as a salesman, whether you're real estate agent, car salesman, whatever, the less amount of work you can do on the product that you're selling, the better. Right? Because if you spend your time researching the product, you're not spending your time selling the product. Even though if you know the product, you could probably sell it better, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. it's just like you're, you're rolling through. You're just, you're just selling. Like, yeah. You know, so you, you can't really can't fault anybody for that because what are they going to do? I mean, you're going to find out about the house and you're going to know more than the next guy. But obviously, if you can just do a bunch of home run deals where people come to you and they say, hey, I'm pre-approved. Here's my letter. Uh, I got eight hundred thousand dollars and I got whatever down payment and find me a house. You're like, cool, that's the that's the one I want. And it's the same with me. If I can get a vehicle comes in off the hook and you put it in gear and it doesn't go, it's like it needs a transmission. Well, that was easy. <laughs> It comes in with, hey, my check engine light comes on every third day of the month. Can you yeah, figure yeah, out what yeah. it is? It's like, oh, that's not the job that I want, but you got to do it, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's the same thing. Well, on that note, I'll say this. Like I have helped uh, clients put together creative financing deals before as a realtor. And what I did is I charged a flat rate. So because the buyer already had the seller and the seller already had the buyer. Oh, there you go. That's a good, yeah, that's a good yeah, way of doing it. There wasn't really a need for, it didn't make sense for there to be commissions because the seller didn't need me to list their property and find a buyer, but the buyer also didn't need me to help them go find a house. They already had each other. 
And I had simply told this person like, hey, there's this stuff you can do. So he came to me and I named a flat rate that was like less than half of what two commissions would be. So I would say this, when dealing with realtors and creative financing, the first thing to know is that most realtors know very little about this. So you would have to find a realtor who does, okay? Or you find a real estate attorney and a real estate attorney will know about this. Um, but they may or may not have done, yeah, a real estate attorney could be a major, major asset for this type of thing. And then if you do find a, a realtor that can help sit down with the seller and run numbers and play with numbers and kind of finagle the thing and, and massage it and get it there, um, a flat rate fee um, that that is less than what the commissions would be, probably, probably even less than what one commission would be as a sort of like advisory or consulting fee, that would make sense. And I've actually been paid in that format before. So um, the Average realtor is not going to be able to help you out, but some of them are sophisticated. Realtors vary uh, tremendously in terms of their sophistication. Some of them are real sophisticated, really high-end professionals. Others barely know what they're doing. So there's that. And then the other thing is that in, in this case, you're probably not looking at two commissions. So yes, you would be saving commissions for the seller. There's, there's value add for the seller. You're adding interest income to the deal. There's another value add for the seller, and then potentially um, you can finagle the numbers so as to keep their capital gains rates lower each year. Yeah, that's as an interesting spin it. on it too. Yeah. So there's yeah. multiple ways to yeah. to sit down and show somebody the math and go, look, you want a million bucks, I can, you know, tax savings, commission savings, and um, and uh, and interest income. I can pad this by you know five hundred and seventy thousand dollars over the course of the deal. You're sixty three years old. You got a bad back. You need to retire. You need uh, income for retirement. I got your solution right here. Look at this. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. It's interesting you said too about how real estate agents because I think the mindset is everybody's is the standard. Like you got to get a real estate license. So you assume that's going to be the standard. And it's kind of like doctors. Once you get a doctor license, like you're a doctor, you're a doctor. And it's like, I mean, it's just interesting. It's like doctors, mechanics, and lawyers, you know, like you just think there's like a bar. And technically with the, I guess with an attorney, there is technically a bar, yeah, right? Technically. And with auto repair, there's a bar too, the Bureau of Automotive Repair, but totally, it's totally separate. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's people in the trade that are very professional that actually do the work to fix that headache vehicle or find that creative solution. And there's other ones that just skate by and they don't want to do it and they don't take the extra time to do it. So yeah. it's just interesting across the board. You know, if you're in a position where things just aren't moving forward, you got to pivot, you know, something's got to change. You got to shift. You got to get somebody else. It's like, you got to make a change to make it work. Cause there's just different. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that you brought up there. Cause it, it's true. It's like, just because they have the label or the name, just because they're a technician or whatever, just because whatever they are, doesn't mean they're at the top of their game. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. I mean, uh, you know, my daughter had a medical condition and we went and saw a specialist, an endocrinologist. And, you know, I was doing research and found some like peer reviewed scientific, you know, medical research, new stuff that pertains specifically to some of the particulars of her condition. So I printed this article out and I brought it to the endocrinologist and I showed the endocrinologist this and she kind of like looked wide eyed at it and she said, oh, well, I'll have to look into this. And I immediately was like, what the heck? What am I paying you for? Huh? 
yeah, you're a specialist. Like you did a residency and, and she was older too. She had been an endocrinologist. For, like you're not just a doctor. You're not even a general practitioner. You're a specialist. I'm not supposed to be introducing you to the latest research in the field as it pertains to my daughter's particularities with her condition. Yep. You're supposed to tell me about this stuff. And so it's interesting how lazy people can get. Like I've noticed that with lawyers too. I hired a lawyer for a matter one time and the guy was just an idiot. I don't think he knew much at all. I think he was, he'd gone to law school like late in life. I hired him because he was cheaper than the others and I got what I paid for. Yeah, that's the other thing too. And then, yeah, and then there's a law firm that I've used for multiple, um, multiple uh, matters down in, in San Luis Obispo. And like, there's two, three lawyers that I've used there and they're all just sharp as razor blades, man. They're just, they're real quick. They're real fast. They get everything done. They're smart. They know what's going on. So the variance in these different professions, whether it's, you know, auto repair, um, you know, real estate brokers, lawyers, doctors, I mean, it's huge, man. The best doctors are 20 times better than the worst doctors, you know, they're not oh, 100%. Times. It's like, it's yeah. not even, it's not even, you can't even, it's not even on the yeah. same paper. Not even the same ballpark. It's exactly. Just, it's, it's amazing. It's like they, it's like they're not involved in the same profession, but they are involved in the same profession. Yeah. And they're giving everyone else a bad name, you know, the bad and, and it's are. the same thing with the doctors. Like you go to a doctor, I've been to 15 doctors and no one knows like, well, 15 doctors is a lot, but it's not a lot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just because you went, and it's like, for, from that point on, every, not only them, but everyone in their family is like, doctors just don't know what they're doing because I've been to, my right. mom's been to 15 doctors and they, no one can figure it out. It's like, well, right. you, gotta, you gotta, it's like, it's sad because it, it does. It brings the whole industry down. No matter what the industry is, if someone's not staying on their game, staying up to date, someone comes to them and it gives that whole industry a bad name and there's no bar. There's no like, like, where's the line that you draw? And just like you said with the specialists, is like, I mean, uh, the correlation between doctors and, and mechanics are always something that gets translated. And I hate doing it because they're obviously much more educated than I am. But the, I'm also a specialist as far as transmissions are concerned. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that if a transmission issue comes in, I always have the technology, the education. I've stayed up to date with what's going on. And I try to stay on top of that bar of all the time. Like I have this standard that I have to constantly achieve and constantly work for because I'm a specialist. And I, I have that pressure that's put on me to do that, and uh, some, and it's just amazing. Sometimes they just lose that, and they like they're, they're a transmission shop, but they don't do eight speeds, they don't do ten speeds. It's like, dude, you gotta like, if you're gonna claim the fame, like you gotta stay on top of this stuff, man. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And the same thing with being like a, a specialist in the medical field. It's like, yeah, I mean, patients are definitely the best advocate if they do the research on their own. They're the most motivated. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many people I come in and they've done all their research and they're not always right, but a lot of them are on the right track and they're not doing this for a living, but they're motivated, right? Like yeah, they're okay. motivated to figure out what the problem is and they do more research than than anybody else would have been. And I, of course, come to the same conclusion, but it's like, wow, that's impressive. Like that's a lot of research that you did for no reason. <laughs> like you're paying me to do it anyway, but in your case, you had to do it. Otherwise you wouldn't have figured it out. Right. You know? So, I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know what the answer there was where I was going with it, but it's definitely interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To hear that. But well, cool, man. Um, yeah, I guess if anybody wants to get in touch with you, you would want to do a shout out to, uh, where they can find you online or yeah well if you want to reach out to me for real estate services uh, my name is jed mcclure uh last name mcclure m-c-c-l-u-r-e and i'm uh 805-835-6638 i'll just throw my direct uh number out there 
you can just call or text, say hi. Uh, if you got a question about real estate or you or somebody you know needs to sell or is looking to buy. Um, I'm not a commercial property specialist. That There's only a couple of those in this area. It mostly doesn't make sense to do that. I've done a little bit of commercial, but mostly I do single family and multifamily. A lot of, invest, a lot of single family and multifamily investment properties because I used to flip houses and stuff like that. So that's really more where where I've been a specialist. And then uh, and then wine tours, I'm Paso Robles Wine Tours. And uh, that's all over Yelp and all that kind of stuff, easy to find. Um, and then if you need self-storage, I'm Mission Mini Storage in San Miguel. And I got three different size units. And so, yeah, three businesses and uh, three different things. So if you want to get a hold of me, um, uh, I won't be hard to find. Cool, man. Well, this has been good. Thanks for yeah, coming in. Thanks for having me on, man. I had a good time. Uh, it's nice to just have a chat. Shoot the breeze a little bit about a bunch of topics and yeah, all over the map. But I hope hope somebody learned something. We were we were all over the place, <laughs> but hopefully hopefully of value. It was thanks, man. Right on.